Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Amen. I don't feel like I'm on my mark here. There we go. Uh, We are in a study through the book of Romans, uh, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So if you have uh, your copy of the scriptures, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 14. Romans chapter 9, we'll start in verse 14. We're going to read through verse 24. Now last week, we did something. We read the scripture, we read the text. And at the end of that, I said, this is the word of God for the people of God. And your response was, thanks be to God. Do we need to practice or y'all? And and, and the reason we're doing that is because what we're reading and studying in Romans right now is some, it's, it's a portion of the scripture that can be difficult to understand. But more so than that, even when we begin to understand it, it's very challenging. Would you say amen to that? It's very challenging. It's very dense. It's paradigm shattering. Uh, At times, it's jostled the soul for all of us, and today's going to be no different. Uh, That doesn't mean that the Word of God is not good when it's hard to receive. Sometimes the Bible will, will tell us things. God will tell us things about himself in his Word that at first we might say, I'm not sure about that, or I'm not sure I like that. But nonetheless, this is the word of God for the people of God, and so our response should be, okay, so let's stand for the reading of the word of God. Romans chapter 9, verse 14, Paul writes and says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us? whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Let's pray together. As always, Father, we, we come to your word desiring to see, asking you for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. I ask that you would, by your spirit, help us to lay aside our pride, our, our hubris, our sense of entitlement, to lay aside the, the notion that in some way this story that you're writing is really about us when it's not. Help us to see today that the story you are writing is about you, and it's a good story. Even when we struggle to understand how it all fits together, this is a good story. So help us see that today as we dive into your word. Help me to, to speak well of your word, not for my own recognition, but for your glory and for the spread of your fame. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. You may be seated. Just a quick review. What are we wrestling with in Romans chapter 9? Here's what we said is the main point of Romans chapter 9. The word of God has not failed. The word of God has not fallen. Why is that the question? The reason that's a question is because Israel, God's people, by and large, have rejected their Messiah, and Paul says they are cut off from Christ. And so that raises a big question. Does God keep his promises? Can we as New Testament believers bank on the promises of God? Can we be sure that his promises to us are sure when it seems as though God's promises to Israel have failed? And Paul's answer was definitive. The word of God has not failed. It will never fail. And the evidence of that is, is seen in that the promises of God from the beginning were not based on the children of the flesh, but they were based on or they were given to the individual people that God chose or elected to be children of the promise. And that's seen in, at the end of verse 6 in Romans 9 where Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel, not all those of genetic heritage belong to Israel or belong to the promise. And so Paul gives us two Old Testament examples to prove that point. He shows us from the Old Testament that God, in his sovereignty, chose Isaac, not Ishmael, the two children of Abraham. And then he gives us the example we looked at last week. God chose Jacob, not Esau, the children of Isaac and Rebekah. And so that raised a huge question as we looked at this really difficult verse last week where God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We wrestled with that last week. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. But that raised a question. If God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, if he chose Jacob and not Esau, not because of their works, because of who they are, it had absolutely nothing to do with them, if God just freely and sovereignly chose one and not the other, is God just? Is God righteous? That's the question that gets raised in verse 14. Let's read it again. Romans 9 verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. But you understand why the question's raised, right? 
If it wasn't because, I mean, Jacob was chosen over Esau. Jacob and Esau are twin brothers. While they were in Rebekah's womb, God says the older will serve the younger. So if they were chosen before they were born, before they had a chance to grow up, before they had a chance to do anything good or bad, if God made his choice, then is God just? Is he right? And verses 15 to 18 are Paul's argument for why there is absolutely no injustice in God. Okay, so let's, let's look at it real quickly. Verse 15, uh, if I were you and you write in your Bibles, I would circle or underline that word for in verse 15. For, is there injustice on God's part? No. Why, Paul? For or because he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Paul's argument. Okay? Here's the conclusion. Verse 16. So, I would circle so. So then, it depends. What's the it? What's the it he's referring to? I think the it is the righteousness and justice of God. So what Paul's saying is, the righteousness and justice of God in his choosing is seen in what? That it depends not on human will or exertion. Those words mean running or effort. It doesn't depend on man's effort, but on God who has mercy. That is Paul's evidence for the justice and righteousness of God. Then he gives another argument, verse 17, for or because... The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Whoa. A little background on Pharaoh, okay? Pharaoh is king in Egypt, and Egypt is the world superpower during the time of the Exodus, and Pharaoh considers himself, along with Egypt, his whole nation with him, to be a god. He's literally worshipped as a god. And the Jews have literally grown into a, an entire nation in Egypt in slavery. And so God chooses Moses. You probably know this story. Lots of movies have been made about it. God chooses Moses and says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But there's a little detail in that story that has huge implications. God sends Moses with a command. Here's an instruction for you, Pharaoh. I'm God. Let my people go. And the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Whoa. God literally gives a command and the command itself hardens Pharaoh's already hard heart all the more. And Pharaoh rejects the instruction of God. And so here's Paul's conclusion, verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Whoa. Look at the context. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This is God speaking, and he says, But for this purpose I have raised you, talking about Pharaoh, up, to show my power 
so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. In other words, Pharaoh, you're alive and you're in power and you're resisting my command, not by your own free will only, but because for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power through you and make my name great. So he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then the question comes right up, doesn't it? Verse 20 or verse 19. So you will then say to me, well, why does he find fault? How's Pharaoh guilty? Who can resist the will of God? You look at that question in verse 19, and doesn't it almost seem that the question in verse 14 still hasn't been answered? Is there injustice on God's part? It's almost like if Paul had answered that question fully, we wouldn't be asking the question in verse 19. Why then does he find fault for who can resist his will? It's almost like Paul, all those fours and sows in verse 15 through 18, you really didn't help us. Let's keep reading, verse 20. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So, let's just take a, a surface look at verses 14 to 21. Here, here's what we might conclude that Paul is saying based on just a surface reading of that. Okay? God, in his sovereignty, freely, no influence from anybody or anything else, freely chooses Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. And that raises a question. Is there any injustice? Is this unjust of God to do this? Is this wrong for God to do this? And Paul's answer is no. He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. And that just on the surface seems like that's not even an answer to the question. That's a, just a restatement of the problem, right? And so then the question comes, well, why then does he find fault? To which Paul responds with, look, you're the clay, he's the potter. Who are you to question God? Deal with it. I mean, could, couldn't you read it that way? But we're going to have to dig a little deeper, okay, because a surface reading is not going to get us to the heart of what Paul's saying and ultimately to the heart and purpose of God here, all right? So here, here's the first conclusion I think we could come to. God is writing his story. Our meticulously and I choose that word carefully, our meticulously sovereign God is writing his story. I choose that word carefully because I don't think the Bible reveals to us a God that's in control of some things and lacking control over other things. He's in control of the good and the bad. Yes, he gave man free will, 
gave us volition. And so man is responsible for his sin and his deeds, even though God is free, completely free, to have mercy on whom he wills and harden whom he wills. So there's this tension. There's a mystery here. It's a tension and a mystery that we must embrace with the help of the Holy Spirit, that God is free and man is accountable. And if we don't embrace that tension, folks, if we don't embrace that mystery, even though we struggle to make sense of it, we're not going to be able to bank on the promises of God. And here's why I say that. As Christians, we love to celebrate and we shout amen to promises in Scripture like he works all things together for good. That the steps of a righteous man are by the Lord. Not by me, not by you, by the Lord. That he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. That Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That Paul would write in Ephesians and say, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. We cannot anchor to promises like that and reject the notion that our meticulously sovereign God is ruling over the good and the bad. He's writing a story. And his story, it includes people like Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Abraham that were chosen for the promise. And God's story includes Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh. He's ruling over it all. And so the question that I want to ask, okay, this is what we're going to wrestle with this morning. If that's who God is, if he's meticulously sovereign, ruling over the good and bad, despite our struggle to get our heads around that, is the story that he's writing, what is the story he's writing about? What's the point and is it good? What's the point of God's story? He's obviously writing it. He tells Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up. He's obviously writing the story, so what's it about and is it good? I want you to hold that question in your mind for just a minute. There's a movie that came out several years ago called Stranger Than Fiction. It stars Will Ferrell, Dustin Hoffman, some others. The story's about a man named Harold Crick. Harold lives, he, I think he's an IRS agent, and he lives a pretty boring, normal, routine kind of life. He's a guy, kind of guy that stands in front of the mirror, and he's so meticulous, he counts the number of brush strokes when he brushes his teeth on each tooth, okay? Pretty boring life. But Harold discovers in the movie that his life is being narrated. He starts to hear this voice in his head that is articulating every little detail of his life as it happens. And this obviously freaks Harold out. And so he goes and gets some counseling, and a counselor refers him to a literary professor named Jules, played by Dustin Hoffman. And Jules helps Harold discover 
that Harold is living out a story that is being written by a real author. And her name is Karen Eiffel. She's a real author, a real live author, and she's writing Harold's story, and, she, and Harold is actually hearing her narrate it in his head. And so with the help of Jules, Harold is able to locate and contact this author that is writing his story. And so in this first clip, Harold meets the author of his story for the first time. Take a look at this. Harold dialed the third phone, fervently making sure to give each number key a specific forceful push. My name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. I'm sorry? My, my name is Harold Crick. Is this a joke? No. No, I work for the IRS. My name is Eiffel is Harold Crick. And when I go through the files at work, I hear a deep and endless ocean. Miss Eiffel? Hello? Hello. Hello. I'm Penny. I'm Kay's assistant. Oh, I'm Harold, her main character. Now, put yourself in Harold's shoes for a minute. You're meeting face-to-face -face with the person that is writing your story. What kind of questions would you ask? I think I would ask, what's this story about? 
Where's this going? What's the point? And is this a good story? So Paul, what story is God writing? What's the point? And is it good? Verse 22. After raising the questions about is there any injustice in God, and Paul's answer raises another question, why then does he find fault? If he's writing the story, who can resist his will? Why does he even find fault? Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The vessels of wrath, I think, points us back to Ishmael, points us back to Esau, and it points us back to Pharaoh, all that Paul's just said. In order, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, who are the vessels of mercy? I think it points back to Isaac, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, right? I think it points back. But I don't think it only points back, because let's keep reading, which he prepared beforehand for glory, verse 24, even us. Everybody say, that's me. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. I've said this before. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you have invited God into your story. I'll take it a step further. When a person rejects Christ, it doesn't even mean that they haven't invited God into their story. Here's what I think the Bible reveals. All of creation is a part of God's story. The story that he's writing. So, Paul, what's the point of the story? I mean, why vessels of wrath? Why do they even exist? And not only the vessels of wrath, but why all the evil, the pain, the sorrow, and the tragedy that at times even touches the lives of the vessels of mercy? I mean, why would God even give life? Think about this for a minute, folks. Why would God even give breath? to the likes of Hitler and Stalin and Osama bin Laden and rapists and murderers and child molesters? Why would he even let them exist? What's the point of this story? I think the answer is in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Simply put, I think the point of God's story is his glory. I think the vessels of wrath are a part of that story. 
And God's patient enduring with everything painful, sorrowful, evil, and tragic is also part of the story. And the reason it's all part of the story is for God's purpose of highlighting, accentuating, magnifying his great name, his power, and his glory. Just like Isaac, just like Jacob, and just like us, that he has called to himself. But we struggle, don't we? We struggle on this side of eternity because we are not able to see how God's meticulous sovereignty, not just over the good, but over the bad as well, over Pharaoh, over the Holocaust, over 9-11, over the cancer diagnosis, over the death of your child. We struggle to see how in the world, if this is a good story about God's glory, how in the world does all that stuff fit into the story, God? So if the story's about your glory, and it includes all of this, is this a good story, God? Back to our movie for a minute. After Harold meets the author that's writing his story, he discovers something. He discovers that all of Karen's books are tragedies. In the end, the heroine always dies. And obviously, Harold is distraught about this. And you know what? Karen is distraught too because she starts to question, have I killed real people in the previous books that I've written? So Harold begs her to change the ending. Don't write that. She's torn. She doesn't know what to do. The way she writes is that she would pin out, handwrite a manuscript of her stories And then she would type them out. And it's only, as you noticed in the previous clip, it's only when she actually types out the manuscript and hits the period button that events start to unfold in Harold's life. So before she types out the ending, she gives Harold a copy of the manuscript. And she says, here, you read it. And Harold can't bring himself to read it. I mean, could you? He can't bring himself to read it. And so I mentioned the literary professor that he got some help from named Jules. He takes the manuscript to Jules and he says, Jules, you read the ending. I can't read it. You read it. And so in this next clip, Harold and Jules meet up after Jules has read the ending of Harold's story. So take a look at this. Possibly the most important novel in her already stunning career. And it 
it's absolutely no good unless you die at the end. I've been over it again and again, and I know, I know how hard this is for you to hear. You're asking me to knowingly face my death? Yes. Really? Yes. I thought you'd, uh, I thought you'd find something. I'm sorry, Harold. Can't we just try and just see if she can change it? No. No? Harold, in the grand scheme, it wouldn't matter. Yes, it would. No. I could quit my job. I could, uh, I could go away with Anna. I could be someone else. Harold, listen to me. I can't die right now. It's just really bad timing. No one wants to die, Harold, but unfortunately we do. Harold, listen to me. Harold, you will die someday, sometime. Heart failure at the bank. Choke on a mint. Some long, drawn-out disease you contracted on vacation. You will die. You will absolutely die. Even if you avoid this death, another will find you. And I guarantee that it won't be nearly as poetic or meaningful that's what she's written. I'm sorry, but it's... It's the nature of all tragedies, Harold. The hero dies, but the story lives on forever. The hero dies, but the story lives on forever. Now, I'm not trying to make a one-to-one comparison between the story of Harold Crick and God's story, okay? <laughs> But, but Harold's having to reckon with the fact that a great story is being written, a masterpiece that includes his death. Uh, let's remember the question at hand. Is the story about God's glory a good story? Is it good when it includes... Vessels of wrath like Pharaoh and all the pain and sorrow and tragedy and evil that continues to exist in our world. If God's writing the story, is it still a good story? Is God righteous and is God just to include all of these things in his story? You remember when the question was first raised about there being any injustice on God's part, Paul's first argument was to quote God's words to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Let's go back and look at that in context. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. 
This is where Paul is quoting from in Romans 9 to try to help us see that God's story is a good story. Exodus 13, or 33, verse 18. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And, and I imagine that, that request from Moses, I imagine it's coming from a place similar to where we are right now. I mean, Moses was tending sheep in the wilderness, minding his own business, and God sets a bush on fire and says, hey, I need you to go and approach the God of the superpower of the known world and tell him to let my people go. And he goes and he tells Pharaoh and he watches God harden Pharaoh's heart, send plagues on Egypt, set God's people free, part a Red Sea, lead them out into the wilderness where the people turn their backs on God. They start to whine and complain and question Moses' leadership. And God's doing all these amazing things and the people are going every which way. And Moses is struggling to get his head around it all. They're wandering in the wilderness. And I think out of all of that, Moses says to God, essentially, look, if you're doing all of this to make your name great, to make known your glory, will you let me see where this is going? Will you show me your glory? I just need like a little bit of my sanctified imagination. But if I'm Moses right here, I'm saying to God, I need to know this is worth it. Will you show me your glory? Verse 19. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses says, God, will you show me your glory? Yep. Let me tell you my name. Now, Moses has heard his name before, right? Moses at the burning bush and God says, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses asked God, all right, when I get there, what, what do I t- who do I tell Israel has sent me? Who sent me? Who do I, what do I tell them? And God said, you tell them, I am who I am has sent you. That's the meaning of God's name. It's Yahweh, translated in our Bibles in English, the Lord in all caps, Yahweh. I am who I am. Moses, you want to see my glory? Let me tell you my name. I am who I am. And look what he says next. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, Again, a surface reading, we might struggle to make sense of that. God, show me your glory. Okay, here's my name, I am, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Here's how I think those dots connect. God says, look, you want to know my glory? You want to see my glory? Here's my name. Here's my essence. My being is I am who I am. I'm not influenced. I'm not constrained. I'm not bound. Nobody tells me what to do. I am God. What makes God God is that he's completely free. No other being in the universe is like that. If they were, they'd be God. I am who I am. And then the expression 
of God's being is seen in, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You want to see my glory? Let me show you what my name means. Let me show you how it's expressed. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So this glory of God that's summed up in his name, I am, that's expressed in his free sovereign choice, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, that glory is so powerful, so awesome, so beautiful, so glorious, if God would have let him see it all, it would have killed Moses. And so God has to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock and cover Moses with his hand. And then as he passes by, he takes his hand away for a moment, lets Moses see his back. And that glory, when we receive our new and glorified bodies, it won't kill us, but in eternity it will be the source of our everlasting joy and pleasure. That's a little taste of the glory that is the point of this story that God is writing. So the question is, is that right? Is that good that God would write this story the way he's writing it? And the whole point be, even if we struggle to see it from this vantage point, the whole point is his glory. Is that right? Is that good? Is this a good story? Go back with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Is this right? Is there any injustice in God? Is there any unrighteousness in God that he would freely and sovereignly choose in this way? Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So we're talking about unrighteousness now. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And watch this. And exchanged the glory. We, we have a little bit of understanding now about what glory is, right? Show me your glory, God. Let me tell you my name. I am. Let me give you a taste of what I am means. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. So this glory is being exchanged for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So the essence, track with me on this, okay? The essence of unrighteousness is looking at the glory of God. I am his being. 
I have mercy. Come on, I have mercy. He's sovereign. He's free. The glory of God that Mo- Moses couldn't even see. It's looking at that glory and going, nope. Don't want that. I want me. I want my money. I want my power. I want my lust. It's the essence of unrighteousness. That's the root of sin. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water, and they've hewn out systems for, cisterns for themselves that hold no water. The essence of all sin, all sin, it doesn't matter what it is, is looking at the glory of God and saying, I don't want that, I want this. So if that's the essence of unrighteousness, what then would be the essence of righteousness? If that's unjust, what would be the essence of justice? Would it not be God's unwavering commitment to his own glory? Would it not be God's writing the story to put his glory on display? And even if that includes both the good and the bad, and we struggle to make sense of it, The essence of God's righteousness is seen. Paul did answer the question. The essence of God's righteousness is seen in his glory expressed in that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. That God is free. God is sovereign. God is writing the story and it's a good story. It's the right story. Sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of the story, don't we? We know the promises. All things are going to work together for good. My steps are ordered, but yet I can't make sense of why in the ordered steps are these certain steps that include this pain or this struggle, or this sorrow, or this tragedy. I can't figure out why in the grand scheme of things, God who holds the universe in the palm of his hands would allow such things to exist in his story. We may struggle to make sense of that, but here's what we know. God could not be more righteous than to have an unwavering commitment to his own glory. So what should our response be? When we can't make sense of it, what should our response be? Harold finally musters up the courage to read his story, to read the ending. He reads the ending, and in this next clip, he runs into Karen, the author, after having read the conclusion to the story that she's writing. So check this out. It's lovely. 
I like the part about the guitars. Thanks, thanks. Good. Well, Look, listen, I'm... No, I, I, I read it, and, and I, I loved it. And there's only one way it can end. I mean, I, I don't have much background in literary anything, but this seems simple enough. I love your book, and I think you should finish it. Finish the story. I won't tell you how the movie ends. But I love that scene because Harold comes to the point and he just simply says, write the story. It's a good story. I think our worshipful response to our sovereign God, even when we can't make sense of it all, should be, God, write your story. It's about your glory. And you've given me enough tastes of that glory that that's what I want. And so I think it's possible. I think maybe the essence of faith is when we're in the middle of the story and it hurts, Life's not all bad. We've talked about that before. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of joy we experience in this life. There's a lot of blessings that we receive from the Lord on a daily basis. But there are times when we look at our world and the world around us and we wonder, God, are you in control? Are you writing a story? And is this a good story? And I think the essence of faith that comes Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. When we submit ourselves to his word and to the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible for the people of God to say, God, write your story. It's a good story because it's about your glory. If you're in Christ... I pray that you would look to God this morning and that you would ask him to help you see that you would ask him by faith that you could come to the place where you would say to him and worship God, write your story, write it for your glory. And whatever that means for me, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Make your name great. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray like this. Not, not that it's a pattern, not that it's a ritual that we repeat, but he said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's where I start. I start with you. I start with your name, Yahweh. I am who I am. Hallowed be your name and your kingdom Come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And whatever I need today, whatever daily bread I need to keep that as my focus, give us this day 
our daily bread. And forgive us for every time, every moment where I've looked at your glory and said, no, I don't want that, I want this. Don't lead me into temptation. Don't. It's not that it's wrong to question God. I don't think it's a sin to ask God why. But I do think the enemy tries to show up in those questions and lead us away from faith, lead us away from trust, lead us away from that worshipful response where we say, God, even though I can't make sense of it, write your story. So lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Why? Because ultimately this is all about me. No, because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and yours is the If you're not in Christ, maybe you're asking the question in desperation, what must I do to be saved? And if that question is bubbling up in you right now, if it's bubbling up in anyone who watches this or listens to the podcast, here's what I would say to you. That is the evidence of God's gracious call to you. So say yes, surrender, stop fighting, repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and receive the free gift of the righteousness of God in Christ. And then say, God, Write your story. Write it for your glory. Let's look to him. Let's let the Holy Spirit do what needs to be done in us so that we can say, God, write your story. Would you stand with me? Lord, it's a good story. It's a good story. I struggle to see it. When I knelt down by a hospital bed just this week, and I held the hand of a daughter who had just been in a serious car accident in which her mother had died. And I looked into her face and I saw the pain and I saw the hurt and the grief as I held her hand I thought about you and I thought God I wish this wasn't part of the story. I wish that this pain wasn't part of the story that you are writing. But I will not exchange your glory. I will not trivialize it and say that you are not in control, that you're not God, that you're not, you're not I am who I am. I won't say that. But I'll cry with those who cry. I'll weep with those who weep. I'll mourn with those who mourn. 
I won't try to give fluffy answers to hard questions, but I will at the end of the day join with your people and say, God, write your story. And let it be for your glory. Because nothing could be more right, nothing could be more good, and nothing else could offer us the promise of joy everlasting that's unspeakable and full of glory. Help us today. Help us to say, God, finish it. Write the story. In your name, amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.